today, Bill Clinton, foreign policy limits within a unipolar world. Last time, we saw the Cold War finally end with the downfall and disintegration of the Soviet Union and with a wholly different age in international relations dawning. In 1991, columnist Charles Krauthammer coined a catchy phrase, calling this the unipolar moment. His basic thesis? Only one superpower was still standing. But almost before Americans could celebrate this new state of affairs, it soon seemed that what any single country could accomplish in foreign affairs was likely to be limited. In fact, even before the fall of the Soviet Union, George H.W. Bush had given speeches hailing the arrival of a new era in international politics. But actually establishing a more just, peaceful, and stable world soon proved as elusive a goal as ever. On the right side of the political spectrum, the sentiments of those like Ronald Reagan, who declared there would be no hot spots if only the Soviet Union would stop causing them, soon got exposed as simplistic. Over on the left, those who figured all peace required was to get the superpowers to move past their violent Cold War rivalries. Well, hopes of that kind vanished quickly, too. Those familiar Cold War divisions had given way to a much more fluid international system, but one still marked by lots of crises. Taking a broader view of what was going on here, it's been said that in international relations, it's way easier to deter than to compel. That is, it's one thing to convince a government not to do something. It's even more challenging to get that government to take some particular action you want. Well, Deterrence was key to Cold War policies, compellence to post-Cold War ones. During the Cold War, U.S. foreign policymakers had wrestled with questions like, how do we stop the Soviets from invading Western Europe? In this new era, a key question was, how do we get people to stop killing each other inside some foreign country in great turmoil. And in fact, one of the first international problems U.S. policymakers grappled with involved very serious antagonisms within states. Often the sources of all this friction were really deep-seated grievances kind of sprouting up from old or ancient roots. Back in Cold War days, 
the superpowers, while sometimes acting pretty belligerently, had also served to stabilize the international system. They stood as powerful, disciplining agents, keeping governments they influenced in line. But with the superpower rivalry over, more civil wars, more domestic tyranny, and much more ethnic and religious strife cropped up. Last time we considered the significant interstate conflict that broke out when Iraq invaded Kuwait, triggering the Persian Gulf War handled by George H.W. Bush. But the overriding problem for this new era seemed to be intrastate conflict. That is, different forms of fighting breaking out within different countries. Hot spots in places like Somalia, Bosnia, Rwanda, Chechnya, Kosovo. They all involved fighting inside the boundaries of sovereign states. Then, more difficult questions. Under what circumstances should powerful governments get deeply involved in problems within foreign countries? And for how long? And at what costs? It was a new landscape. And really, leaders of both parties struggled to find the right path through all the issues of this post-Cold War era. It's also important to acknowledge, though, that for all of the difficult, intractable, quite bloody problems that soon sprang up, the post-Cold War international outlook, it had some really positive dimensions, too. Fears of a nuclear holocaust had subsided. Capitalizing now on a lot more great power cooperation, and also on the good work of some non-governmental organizations, skilled in things like mediation and peace building, some very long-lived disputes actually got resolved. Parties to major conflicts arrived at settlements that brought real hope for the future. Think of Southern Africa, Namibia, Mozambique, and South Africa, or the Caribbean Basin, El Salvador, Guatemala, Haiti. And here, one of the fascinating complexities of international affairs. Foreign intervention in local and national conflicts which we've seen in various contexts as a real problem in past eras. Well, now it sometimes was key to bringing about substantial progress. Outside peacekeepers often helped out, as did NGOs skilled in getting food and emergency relief into conflict situations. What made contending with these new challenges of the 90s 
especially difficult to deal with, was yet another development. Although bitter conflicts within countries have occurred for generations, a post-Cold War consensus began to develop in many governments, especially in the West, that international society has a real responsibility to somehow try to deal with these internal conflicts. And this marked a huge change in attitude. For much of the history of modern international relations, the domestic conditions of sovereign states, that is, whatever was happening inside their borders, was not thought to be a matter for international action. But increasingly, international organizations and a wide spectrum of the world's governments came to see internal affairs as a necessary and legitimate matter of inquiry for outsiders. And this new attitude was particularly problematic for the United States as the most powerful country and the one most intent on exercising global leadership in the emerging post-Cold War era. In the 90s, then, American presidential administrations, first that of George H.W. Bush, then that of Bill Clinton, were often questioned at home and abroad. What positive steps are being taken vis-a-vis -vis this situation or that one? For their part, U.S. officials confronted by various international problems were trying to find measures that would be effective but not so costly as to be beyond the country's means or beyond what the American public would support. And in the meantime, a great chorus of critics seemed to be constantly peering over the shoulders of American policymakers, arguing that U.S. leaders were naive, selfish, immoral, foolish, self-absorbed, or short-sighted. In any event, those introductory thoughts on the broader context take us along to the foreign policymakers of the Clinton administration, which ended up being in office for two terms from 1993 to 2001. And the very first thing to note is that Bill Clinton entered office as yet another in a long line of American presidents with painfully little prior experience in international relations. Further, George Bush had lost the election to Clinton in part because of the widespread perception he was spending way too much time on foreign policy issues. Well, as for the new president's background, after graduating from Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar and then Yale Law School, Clinton had returned to his native Arkansas to serve as Attorney General there 
and then as governor for five terms, not all consecutive and spanning a dozen years or so. During the presidential campaign against George H.W. Bush, with all of his international experience, Clinton chose not to debate President Bush on foreign policy, focusing instead on domestic economic issues. In fact, he had a big sign put up at Clinton campaign headquarters. It's the economy, stupid! This domestic focus carried Clinton into the White House at age 46, the second youngest elected president. But it also meant international affairs were not at all a center of attention for the early Clinton administration. Indeed, early on, the president foresaw foreign policy coming into play only as it affected the American economy. Well, Woodrow Wilson could have advised Clinton that events can come to demand attention, whatever the president's inclinations might be. But at first, much of the administration's attention was on the country's domestic matters. In fact, while Clinton got regular briefings on international developments, he differed from every president since Harry Truman in deciding not to have any regularly scheduled meetings with his foreign policy team. Those meetings that did occur were, in the words of Colin Powell, who chaired the Joint Chiefs of Staff in these years, like think tank seminars or even graduate student bowl sessions. And discussions of international issues tended to go on and on, with the president's foreign policy decision-making too often informal and undisciplined. One scholar likened it to, quote, a little boys soccer team with no assigned positions and each player chasing the ball. All told, it was a kind of messy foreign policy-making process. Now, for Secretary of State in his first term, Clinton chose an ex-top official from way back in the Carter days, Warren Christopher, an international lawyer. Christopher was businesslike, knowledgeable, a kind of dour personality, and a dogged negotiator, but Secretary Christopher did little in the way of foreign policy strategizing. As one scholar put it, competent but modest and unassuming, Warren Christopher would neither capture headlines from Bill Clinton nor publicly disagree with him. Heading the National Security Council was Anthony Lake, a longtime U.S. diplomat who'd worked for and then had a falling out with Henry Kissinger over the U.S. policies in the Vietnam War. 
Lake had then become a professor teaching at colleges in New England before becoming a key foreign policy advisor in Clinton's presidential campaign. He served as NSC advisor in Clinton's first term. A man without the big ego of a Henry Kissinger or a Zbigniew Brzezinski. But Lake might have swung to the opposite extreme. He kept such a low profile, serving as a behind-the-scenes advisor, that one New York Times picture of him and Clinton actually labeled Anthony Lake unidentified. Before Clinton's second term, Anthony Lake stepped down to be replaced by his assistant, Sandy Berger, a longtime Clinton confidant, sometimes called an FOB, a friend of Bill. Then Madeleine Albright enjoyed cabinet-level rank as America's ambassador to the United Nations before she stepped up to become the country's first woman Secretary of State during Clinton's second term. Albright actually was the mother of two uh, twin girls that I knew, slightly in high school and then a bit better when we all lived in the same dorm in college and all were playing intercollegiate sports, baseball in my case, field hockey and ice hockey in theirs. Madeline Albright had grown up as a devout Catholic, learning, apparently only after she became Secretary of State, that her parents had been born Jewish, and three grandparents had been killed in the Holocaust. Albright was the daughter of a diplomat from Czechoslovakia, a man who defected to the U.S. in 1948 after the communist coup in that country that I mentioned in that early Cold War lecture. And Madeleine Albright worked on the National Security Council during the Carter administration years, then taught political science at Georgetown University. As a diplomat, she became known for her blunt, outspoken, and often rather hawkish views. At one point, Madeleine Albright pronounced, If we have to use force, it is because we are America. We are the indispensable nation. Anyone interested in learning more about her might start with Albright's autobiography entitled, Madam Secretary. Now, as this new foreign policy team set sail, critics began to harp on how President Clinton was often too inaccessible, even to top officials like the Secretary of Defense. Consequently, much of U.S. foreign policy was now getting hammered out at lower levels. And lacking much top-down guidance, it was often incremental. It responded to problems or crises rather than being proactive and forward-looking. 
One account stated, The administration's foreign policy is derided almost everywhere for being ad hoc, episodic, unsteady, easily reversed. Henry Kissinger remarked, Almost everywhere the administration gets engaged, it recoils before the consequences. One good example of this came in Haiti, racked once again by violence and civil war, particularly after a military coup forced out of office the democratically elected president in 1990, the Reverend Jean-Baptiste Aristide. And this coup was followed by the Haitian military torturing and killing many of its opponents. Now, during the American election campaign, Clinton had criticized Bush's policy of repatriating Haitian boat people, intercepted by the U.S. Coast Guard as they headed to the U.S. But upon coming into power, the new president received reports that large numbers of Haitians in this turmoil in their country were preparing to flee, many of them on rafts and other unseaworthy vessels headed to Florida, a possible humanitarian crisis thus loomed. Clinton administration diplomats got to work, and the administration thought it had negotiated a deal with the Haitian military junta to step aside and allow Aristide, the democratically elected president, to reassume power. But when a U.S. Navy ship carrying military advisors and engineers arrived, the Haitian regime staged a hostile demonstration, and the U.S. ship ended up sailing away in kind of humiliating fashion. More than a year later, the Clinton administration did negotiate Aristide's return, backed this time by a larger show of U.S. military force, with 20,000 U.S. troops poised to invade, Negotiators, led by Jimmy Carter and Colin Powell, persuaded Haiti's military leaders to step aside. But while this was a success, considerable damage had already been done to the Clinton administration's reputation in foreign affairs. It had not appeared especially foresighted or far-sighted. President Clinton just didn't seem determined in international affairs, or even very engaged in them, even some quite close to U.S. borders. When situations arose abroad, whether to respond at all, and how exactly to do so, continued to befuddle a foreign policy team that often seemed awkward, and uncomfortable, and on occasion, over its head or out of its depth. 
Again, a historical perspective may be useful here. Across the 20th century, we've seen many confident American foreign policymakers with quite determined visions of how to respond to international affairs. You might think of Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, Dwight Eisenhower and John Foster Dulles, Truman with Dean Acheson and George Marshall at his side, Woodrow Wilson, Teddy Roosevelt. But here, as the century drew to a close, no one of that ilk appeared. The president himself in foreign policy was neither experienced nor engaged and confident in strategizing and maneuvers. Then, some of Bill Clinton's troubles were totally self-inflicted. He had a tawdry affair with a 22-year-old White House intern, Monica Lewinsky. And then when he was accused in another case, dating back to his time as governor of Arkansas, he lied about the Lewinsky affair under oath, trying to keep the truth from his wife and the public. All this completely dominated the news starting in 1998 with the impeachment of the president for perjury and obstruction of justice, followed by his acquittal by the U.S. Senate. Among other things, all this really damaged Clinton's bid for bipartisan support in foreign policy. And while much of the electorate seemed to forgive the president, it all proved a great distraction in Clinton's second term in office. While Clinton was able to win another presidential election, after 1994, congressional majorities led by Republicans, quote, cut foreign aid, delayed ambassadorial appointments, and rejected the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Now, while the foreign policy outlook was mostly bleak, there were a few real achievements in the Clinton years, which we shouldn't overlook. After significant lobbying by the president, NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, got passed in bipartisan fashion, actually with a bit more support from Republicans in Congress and the Senate than from Democrats. And NAFTA provided a real economic boost. One indication, today, U.S. manufacturing capacity is 66% greater than it was back in 1994. Then, the World Trade Organization came into being, providing another stimulus as it further liberalized international trade. In addition, in the Clinton years, some long festering issues finally got dealt with, like the position of gays and lesbians in the U.S. Armed Forces. This resolved via the don't ask, don't tell policy. But even with these varied achievements in mind, 
the Clinton administration left a foreign policy record that was flawed and by no means especially inspiring. One Clinton decision for you all to consider was expanding the North Atlantic Treaty Organization eastward. First into Poland, Hungary, and the Czech Republic, all former Soviet satellites. The elderly George Kennan argued at the time that this was a, quote, most fateful error that would impel Russian foreign policy in directions decidedly not to our liking. But to get a better sense for the problems and the policies of this new era, I want to turn next to two case studies, starting with one in Somalia in East Africa. In 1991, the Somali dictator fled his country, ending 21 years of authoritarian rule and leaving behind a very weak, divided, poverty-stricken country. That situation soon turned chaotic, in part because about 100,000 guns were circulating and Somali warlords began to fight for control. The United Nations had to pull out its officials with only a few NGOs like the Red Cross and Save the Children hanging on inside Somalia. The question became, could this disintegrating state be sufficiently stabilized that UN humanitarian relief workers might return? Now, normally, the UN provided emergency relief only at the request of the government in charge of a state. And those government authorities were then supposed to do a whole lot to help provide protection. But here, Somalia really had no government. What to do in that highly unusual situation. And as if all that weren't bad enough, a terrible famine then struck. And by August 1992, a million of the population of seven million had fled abroad. Another million people had already starved to death. And still another four and a half million Somalis were going really hungry. Inside Somalia, corruption was just running rampant. Outside organizations had to pay off warlords to get any food into the starving. And even after bribes got paid, warlords kept looting relief shipments. The UN Secretary General estimated warlords were hijacking four-fifths of the food and medicine being sent into Somalia. The Security Council then resolved 
to send in 500 soldiers. But the size of this force was ridiculously small. So tiny a peacekeeping operation was impotent. And the warlords soon managed to pin those peacekeepers down in their camps. That was the situation in Somalia in the waning days of the George H.W. Bush administration. And eventually, President Bush offered 28,000 U.S. troops, but only if the U.N. allowed them to fight their way through any attempt to stop the flow of humanitarian aid. The Secretary General agreed, and American soldiers entered Somalia. Before long, the UN operation was up and working with some real initial successes. The number of malnourished children in the capital of Mogadishu dropped from 60% half a year earlier to 10%, still far too high, but more like a normal year in Somalia. And the early progress in humanitarian relief meant that Somalis who'd been eating shipments of seeds to keep from starving could now plant the seeds. By mid-93, the Food and Agricultural Organization was predicting that Somali agricultural production would soon rebound to about 70% of normal levels. All this was remarkable. It showed the UN and the US effectively cooperating here in the early post-Cold War years. But one overriding problem in Somalia was not being effectively addressed. Very high levels of continuing violence. Bandits kept cutting off humanitarian aid shipments in outlying areas, and city thugs continued to rob relief workers. At first, U.S. troops rolling into Mogadishu with tanks and so on had just overawed the Somali warlords. But the American forces were then kept on a fairly tight leash. Their mission was simply to create a secure environment in which humanitarian relief could flow and Somalis could be fed. Interfering in the chaotic, jumbled, violent politics of Somalia, or providing policing, law and order, justice and stability across the whole country, well, those tasks were way beyond the mission of the U.S. forces stationed there. So, while some heavy weapons got confiscated, the U.S. military didn't set about disarming or breaking up the forces of really any of the rival warlords. Instead, not wanting to get too deeply involved or take more criticism and more casualties than necessary, the American peacekeepers opted not to arrest 
even the most problematic warlords, or break up their gangs. Then, before long, U.S. government spokespersons reminded everyone that American soldiers weren't going to be there forever. Such statements muted domestic and international criticism. But within Somalia, the promise that U.S. forces were going to leave just caused warlords to busily stockpile more guns and armored trucks and so on. Then, in May 1993, the U.S. government began to pull its troops out of the peacekeeping force, handing things over to a much less heavily armed U.N. contingent. Violence then escalated when one warlord, Mohammed Farah Aidid, launched a guerrilla campaign with an ambush that killed 24 UN peacekeepers from Pakistan. Then came an attack on US soldiers, leaving four Americans dead. And additional deaths followed as local snipers shot at the Americans in marketplaces, often killing civilians too. All that led to a really frustrating manhunt around Mogadishu with U.S. Army Rangers unable to locate IDED in their effort to bring him to justice. Then U.S. forces got ambushed again and another 18 American soldiers got killed this time with their corpses dragged through the streets. President Clinton responded by doubling the American presence, but also announcing all U.S. troops would pull out by April 1994. And when the U.S. left, Somalia reverted to a gruesome political struggle. Thugs, bandits, rival, quarreling warlords. And all of this made the Somalia action increasingly controversial within the U.S. To rally support, U.N. Representative Madeleine Albright had written in the New York Times, America must stay the course and help lift Somalia and its people from the category of a failed state into that of an emerging democracy. Success is important, not only for these Somalis, but also because anarchy may produce refugees, uncontrolled arms peddling, and targets of opportunity for terrorists and their state sponsors. Columnist Charles Krauthammer replied in the Washington Post, Apart from the fact that it could take a hundred years to turn Somalia from its current pre-colonial state of nature into an emerging democracy, there is this question 
Why? Why must the United States do this? Refugees there may be, but they would go to neighboring countries, which are also 7,000 miles away from the U.S. Uncontrolled arms peddling? We are not exactly talking about tactical nuclear weapons here. We're talking about howitzers and recoilless rifles. As for targets of opportunity for terrorism, this is entirely incoherent. What targets of opportunity? What interests do terrorists have in a country with no industry, no army, no power, and zero importance to the world balance of power? Famine relief is one thing. Nation building is another. If the United Nations wants to undertake what has never been done in the history of the world, fine. The United States is not in that business. It is bad enough playing cop to the world. Playing God is crazy. So, despite the early humanitarian successes, the Somali mission came to be widely viewed as a dismal failure. And this debacle then spilled over into the next great crisis in Africa in the post-Cold War era, the one occurring in Rwanda when bloody violence broke out there. The predominant attitude in the Clinton administration and in Congress was no more Somali-like peacekeeping operations. But here in Rwanda, something that is actually quite rare was taking place. A genocide. That is, in Rwanda there were deliberate and systematic killings, mass killings, aimed at destroying a whole ethnic, racial, or religious group. Members of the Hutu tribe ultimately massacred hundreds of thousands of those of the competing Tutsi group as well as some moderate Hutus who were trying to stop the terrible slaughter. A small force of UN peacekeepers was in the country, but as the violence escalated, the Belgians felt they had to pull out this contingent. And this brought on more massacres of innocent people. Any determined resolve to step in and stop the killings simply did not exist, either in the United Nations or really in any powerful, possible leader state. And while fussing over whether or not this really qualified as an instance of genocide, the U.S. and other powers opted not to intervene and then later deeply regretted that decision as the extent of the horrific mass killings became widely publicized. 
in a visit to Africa in 1998, Clinton apologized for not, quote, calling these crimes by their rightful name, genocide. So Rwanda proved an enormous human catastrophe, a terrible negative mark here early in the post-Cold War years on the records of both the United Nations and the United States. And that takes us to one more of the new post-Cold War challenges for the country. The outbreak of fighting in Europe. This time, once again, up in the Balkan Mountains of Central Europe. The context. After World War II, a communist regime led by a man named Joseph Braz Tito created the Socialist Federal Republic of Yugoslavia. This state included six republics and the four most important were Serbia, Croatia, Slovenia, and Bosnia. And then via the 1974 Constitution, two autonomous regions, Kosovo and Vojvodina, formerly integral parts of Serbia. And the borders of the constituent republics within Yugoslavia had been drawn arbitrarily with ethnic groups scattered all around. Several of these republics had once been self-governing and a succession of foreign powers had also once ruled over them. Most important, bitter historical animosities among the different ethnic groups had stemmed from just a slew of ancient disputes and atrocities. Well, in trying to create new socialist citizens loyal to their Marxist country, the Tito regime had downplayed all of these long-standing religious and ethnic differences. Then, to try to weld these divided and fractious republics into a unified communist state, Tito had done his best to prohibit and suppress the ethnic nationalism that had long characterized the Balkans region through various forms of coercion. Yugoslavia's communist government accomplished this goal to some extent, though brutally, via mass executions, death marches, concentration camps, and secret police actions. The communist government killed 
maybe 250,000 people. Communist Yugoslavia then didn't permit people declaring or acting on their ethnicity. And over time, some ethnic identities within Yugoslavia were effectively suppressed. As years passed, some ethnic divisions became blurred as Yugoslav citizens moved and intermarriage occurred. Indeed, for a time, the capital, Sarajevo, Yugoslavia, became seen as a real model of multi-ethnic tolerance. When the International Olympic Committee came to select a host site for the 1984 Winter Olympics, one symbolic of international peace and unity, Sarajevo seemed an ideal choice. But the end of the 20th century brought profound changes to the Balkans, as it did to the rest of Eastern Europe. Tito died in 1980, and soon those old ethnic and national fissures reappeared. Serbia, Croatia, and Bosnia started to jockey with one another as rival political subdivisions of Yugoslavia. And as Mikhail Gorbachev instituted all those Soviet reforms, a real struggle occurred within the Yugoslavian Communist Party between supporters and opponents of liberalizing the regime. Then, the Soviet collapse led to a power vacuum and constitutional questions about the future political structure of Yugoslavia. Would it be a single federal state? A confederation of independent states? Or something completely different? All of this also brought on renewed nationalism, with politicians reviving ancient ethnic animosities in order to boost their popularity. In Serbia, in late 1987, a nationalistic firebrand of a politician, Slobodan Milosevic, seize power in a Serbian Communist Party coup. And he began to champion the goal of reintegrating those autonomous regions, Kosovo and Vojvodina, into Serbia. Then in 1990, reacting to events in Serbia, Croatia elected its own nationalist leader on an anti-Serbia platform. As for Bosnia, more trouble here. Bosnia, the most ethnically diverse of the republics. Here, three different ethnic groups vied for power, 
with Serbians and Croatians each hoping to incorporate some Bosnian territory into their own states. They also interfered in Bosnian politics. In short, the whole country of Yugoslavia was beginning to collapse. Fighting broke out as the Serb army attacked Slovenia and then in 1991 clashed with Croatian force forces. And eventually the Serbs came to hold a third of Croatian territory. Most horrifying of all, as this occurred, Serbian militias started ethnic cleansing campaigns. That meant expelling Croats from those parts of Croatia that had majority Serb populations. Now, U.S. officials did not immediately see fighting in the Balkans as threatening any vital American interests. So the U.S. government was neither prepared to bring together an intervention force as it had done in Kuwait, nor accept a lot of costs in dealing with this European conflict. For its part, Russia had long been allied with the Serbs, and Russia was ready to use its veto to block UN Security Council action that might harm the Serbs. And given the recent collapse of the Soviet Union, Russian-American relations were at a very delicate stage. So, initially, the United States tried to pressure European countries to take the lead in resolving what seemed chiefly a European problem. Some Western leaders initially felt that their vital interest here was to prevent a wider war, one that might involve Russia, Western European countries, and the United States, or maybe... It might involve Greece or Turkey. But nobody was very eager to step forward to intervene in this bloody civil war, since the costs were going to be considerable. As violence increased in early 1992, the United Nations did finally establish a peacekeeping force headquartered in Sarajevo. Early in 1992, European states recognized Croatia and Slovenia to be independent. And the Bosnian parliament, fearing that Milosevic and the Serbs would now try to force Bosnia into their new greater Serbia, the Bosnians asked the Europeans to recognize Bosnia, too, as an independent state. 
But Serbs living within Bosnia violently resisted. And all this led to civil war within Bosnia. Eventually, the Bosnian Serbs began to surround and besiege Muslim cities. The terrible bloodshed that ensued raised real human rights issues. But it remained a conflict that seemed to affect national values maybe more than national interests. And in the meantime, President Clinton was complaining that the situation in the Balkans was taking too much of his time. Quote, I don't want to spend any more time on Bosnia than is absolutely necessary, because what I got elected to do was to let America look at our own problems. In short, then, months passed and little effective leadership was exercised, whether by the U.S., other Western powers, the United Nations, the European states, or any other possible international leader. In yet another increasingly common feature of post-Cold War international affairs, the Western powers, they remained bitterly divided on policy, and consequently only very limited measures were taken, and these proved largely ineffective. Within Bosnia, the parties regularly declared ceasefires only to have them melt away. The UN Security Council kept pleading with the different sides to stop fighting, stop these horrible ethnic cleansing campaigns. But in the meantime, bloody fighting raged on within Bosnia. And by the summer of 92, the better supplied Bosnian Serbs held the upper hand across much of the country. One authority reported, international conscience was soon struck by reports of severe human rights abuses, including rapes executions, the setting up of prison camps, and the expulsion of non-Serbs from Serb-controlled regions of Bosnia. And the U.S. and other major powers simply muddled along, wringing their hands over the human costs of this European conflict but continuing to shy away from undertaking to enforce a peace through military action. But all the rhetoric, the half-steps, the slaps on the wrist, left the U.S., the U.N., the Europeans, all looking totally ineffectual while thoroughly alienating all the parties to the conflict. In 1993, after the Bosnian Serb Air Force began to bomb Muslim villages, 
the UN Secretary General requested that NATO forces become involved. But the NATO member states were also divided. The following month, the Security Council ordered the parties to respect the Muslim village of Srebrenica as a safe area for civilians. And when Bosnian Serb and Bosnian Muslim commanders agreed, the Security Council declared that Sarajevo and four other communities also be designated safe havens. The problem with this was that the United Nations did not have adequate forces on the ground to protect these places. And for Serbs, who saw sieges of Muslim towns as a key component of their military strategy, the UN declaration of these safe areas changed an impartial peacekeeping operation into an anti-Serb, pro-Muslim endeavor. Matters then got worse. Serbian and Croatian forces continued to lob artillery shells into Bosnian cities. And the harassing of humanitarian convoys increased, as did the shelling of civilians within the safe havens. Atrocities and a huge outflow of refugees continued and negotiation seemed unable to bring on peace. Western public opinion built supporting a more forceful international approach. The Serbs in particular seemed utterly contemptuous of the United Nations and its peacekeepers, while NATO appeared frustrated and impotent. In 1994, after Bosnian Serbs fired mortars into a Sarajevo market, killing 69 civilians, NATO announced that airstrikes would occur against any heavy weapons found within 20 kilometers of the city. The Serbs responded with renewed offensives, but NATO countered with strikes against airfields and tanks. And eventually, NATO's use of air power helped to alleviate pressure on Sarajevo, the largest, the most important of the safe areas, essential to maintaining the inflow of supplies and the outflow of refugees. Finally, this major early post-Cold War conflict wound down to a bitter end. In July 1994, the Bosnian Serbs took Srebrenica and promptly massacred thousands of civilians. The Croatian army then intervened, spearheading an offensive alongside Bosnian Croats, 
that captured southwestern Bosnia. The following month, after another mortar attack on a Sarajevo market, NATO undertook heavy bombing against the Serb forces throughout Bosnia, including even strikes with cruise missiles. With the military equation transformed and the United States demanding a peace conference be convened, all the parties agreed to a ceasefire and then to try to negotiate a comprehensive settlement. In the fall of 1995, representatives of the three warring factions arrived at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base near Dayton, Ohio. U.S. diplomats had chosen the Air Force Base in order to isolate the participants and give maximum control of them and of press coverage. And after weeks of difficult negotiations, a general framework for peace, known as the Dayton Peace Accords, got signed. The agreement divided Bosnia into the Bosnian Federation with 51% of the territory and the Serb Republic controlling 49%. Bosnia's existence and its borders, along with those of the Serb Republic and Croatia, were recognized. The parties agreed to settle their disputes peacefully and refrain from the use of force while cooperating fully with the investigation and prosecution of war crimes. A large framework of international organizations working under UN oversight were charged with state-building tasks such as relocating refugees, monitoring human rights, administering elections. And the Security Council authorized NATO to create a force of 60,000 troops to oversee the terms relating to the ceasefire, the demobilization, and the withdrawal of foreign forces from Bosnia. Just a word then in conclusion. Over the last two classes we've been sorting through the litany of problems associated with the dawning of this new post-Cold War era. Last time, remember, we took on the Persian Gulf War, plus Manuel Noriega, organized crime, drug trafficking, and the American invasion of Panama. Today, after an overview of early post-Cold War problems, we focused especially on the situations in Somalia, had a look at Rwanda, and then the former Yugoslavia. And hopefully that gives you all some sense for the brand new challenges American policymakers were trying to cope with as the 20th century ended 
and the 21st started. And as we'll get into next time in much more detail, one more major foreign policy issue we haven't much mentioned today, but that would have to be added right to the top of the list of new challenges for U.S. foreign policymakers. Terrorism. But that's a post-Cold War story we'll get into much deeper next time. Stop right there.